Ed Keenan uh, is joining me now from the Toronto Star. We're going to go through some of the week's top headlines. Hey, Ed, thanks for joining me. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. I guess you guys have a studio full of tea and crumpets for the <laughs> coronation day. I forgot uh, to wear. I, I forgot to wear my little, uh, you know, crown. I forgot to bring that into the <laughs> studio. <laughs> I think if you forget to wear your uh, your regalia, then you have to do an extra rendition of "God Save the King." <laughs> Were you watching the coronation this morning, Ed? You know what? I I did not. I uh, <laughs> I took right. the opportunity to celebrate by getting some much needed sleep. Yeah, and uh, and then um. When I did get up, though, I watched some of the highlights and recaps and whatnot, especially on social media. A lot of people had clips. So, I mean, it does seem like a lot of people are keen to, you know, we're keen to get up and watch it early and, and some people to make fun of it and some people to celebrate it. But, you know, I mean, from, from a Canadian perspective, he, he is the king of Canada yeah. now, um, yeah. uh, which is hard to, to get used to the feel of that in your mouth. Um but it, is, it was interesting to me in the lead up to it when I saw that the oath he was going to swore uh, doesn't mention Canada by name at all. Mm. We're just relegated to his other realms. Right. So, <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit of humility for us yes. here, I guess. Yes. Or a, Absolutely. A of- I think, you know, I think we were talking about this. We'll, we'll see how this changes, right? Um and the perspective, the perception that Canadians have when it comes to the monarchy, and uh, you know, we're, we've seen with recent polls that Canadians actually really don't care that much about the monarchy as they maybe did before with with Queen Elizabeth. But um, yeah, we'll see how that kind of evolves over the years. We sure will. I mean, I, I think the thing, the value of the monarchy to Canada, if you if you're not have no emotional attachment to it, is kind of that. <laughs> It's irrelevant, yeah, <laughs> in a way, but, but that legally it serves a purpose as the embodiment of the state. Mm-hmm. And so for all kinds of constitutional and treaty purposes and whatnot, it's it's a little bit more convenient than trying to change the system. yeah, um, but it, you know, if if this is a purely symbolic role, Elizabeth was certainly a symbol that people felt more fondly about. So I, I don't know. We'll see. As you say, we'll see how it how it pans out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's get into some of the headlines from this week. Uh, Let's start off uh, talking about the Ford factor. You wrote a piece in the star this week about this reality for the next mayor. The premier has a very important role in either moving this city forward or uh, or keeping it back. You spoke to uh, former mayor of Toronto, David Miller, about his relationship uh, with the province in the past, he had some kind of harsh words for Premier Ford on that. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know that there are words uh, I disagree with, but yeah. then he had some advice to go with it. So, I mean, the thing about Doug Ford, every, every Premier has a lot of authority over the city of yeah. Toronto, and past Premiers have exerted that in ways that frustrate local politicians. Mm-hmm. But Doug Ford, more than anybody else, has made sort of like, forcing his will on Toronto, often by surprise, right? Like, people will remember he cut the size of city council in half in the middle of an election campaign, yep. right? He uh, he changed the Greenbelt rules. He's doing what he's doing in Ontario Place. He all of a sudden overnight said, oh, cities are not going to get any of this um, development charges anymore. Uh, he's, he's done this a whole bunch of times where he sort of, by surprise, changes massive things about how the city is governed or enforces as well. And so 
this looks to a lot of us like bullying behavior. When I said to David Miller, the former mayor of Toronto, you know, the next mayor has to deal with the Ford factor. And how do you navigate that? Because you can't win in a legislative head-to-head fight with him. He holds all the formal power. Yeah. Um, But you can't just roll over, right? Unless you really agree with everything he does, you you can't just do nothing. And what he said is, you know, you learn in a schoolyard that when you're dealing with a bully, you have to stand up to the bully. Mm. And, And so when I said, how do you do that? What he said was that his experience and... And I remember him being mayor, having some tense interactions with both uh, Dalton McGuinty as premier, but also the federal government when Stephen Harper um, was 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 prime minister, Paul Martin was prime minister. But but he said essentially, you know, you, you exercise a, a level of diplomacy and there's an art to it. But that what you want to do, if you're the mayor of Toronto and you've done the work to win that office on a campaign where you've articulated like, this is what we're doing as a city. Give me a mandate to do it. We're going to work together on these priorities as a city. Then you have a big, what he calls a bully pulpit, which is like the power of the people on your side, popular opinion. And so then in targeted ways, you go to stand back by, by sort of bringing the people with you and, and using the power of that mandate. The one thing is that the mayor of the city of Toronto is directly elected by more voters than any other politician in Canada, more than any prime minister, more than any member of parliament, premier, whatever. And so, you know, there's some moral and um, political power in in using that constituency, as long as the other politicians believe that that constituency, that the people of Toronto are behind you. And so it becomes important in a campaign like this one to to gain your support by by telling people this is the plan. This yeah. is the vision. This is what we are going to do together. And then when the premier tries to stop us, we're going to stand up and say, nope. And what I thought was interesting, Ed, is that he thought John Tory failed to do that. He failed to bring people together around a vision, a common vision for the city. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, my, my take on it would be that what John Tory's uh, initial promise and and enduring sort of promise to the people of Toronto was that he would be a, a solid manager who would level it, leverage relationships on behalf of the city, but that they wouldn't be embarrassed, that they wouldn't have to be too worried about things, that he would sort of keep things going on, on cruise control more or less, like keep property taxes in a reasonable level, uh, fix some of the management problems, stop the embarrassing scandals, yeah. which in retrospect, you know, um, <laughs> but... Um, but, but so, I mean, I, I think so what David Miller was talking about is like, certainly in line with even what John Tory's approach to the job, they had different ideas about how it should be done. But I think that more often than not, John Tory's approach to dealing with both the premier and the prime minister is that sort of like, like a business networking relationship, like, we'll we'll navigate this, I'll have some conversations, and we'll, we'll figure it out in the back rooms and that works until it doesn't right? right he he got some wins that way but recently uh you know in trying to get money for this big massive budget shortfall and whatnot the the other levels of government just weren't delivering yeah and so it becomes a question of okay okay what now so if we take that what what david miller was talking about about like rallying people around a vision and a cause and 
you know, getting people really excited about Toronto again. Who do you think out of the 73, <laughs> Ed, the 73, who do you think is standing standing up in that group? And, and you feel it, it kind of has a bit of that element of rallying people together or could have that potential of rallying people together. It's an interesting question. And, you know, as long as, as to some of us who've been, talking about this and writing about it every day, it feels like, okay, well, we're well into this campaign. Uh, but, you know, I made some comments this week that had had some people working on some of the campaigns I thought I thought needed to get moving. Yeah. Um, and they were saying, you know, the election's June 26th. We've got more, <laughs> you know, we got a month, more, almost two months left, right? So there's still time for a lot of these politicians to do it. But I think, um, I think, uh, uh, on sort of the progressive side, Josh Matlow has come out and and announced a lot of different policy things that he he says and that at a glance uh, look sort of reasonably achievable. They're not like pie in the sky dreams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and also is sort of talking about like the city that works, making it work again, and and how neighbors work together. So he, I mean, he's starting to get partway there. I think Olivia Chow with her kind of like the city that cares. Ha is is only just starting to sketch in what that looks like what yeah. the what the vision picture is and so maybe she's got time i think uh on on the other side mark saunders is somebody who, who really is is his whole entire vision seems to be like public safety law yeah. and order yeah. and and good relations with doug ford yeah. so you know that's that's that option that's there um i think i think in terms of the others like um Brad, the other major sort of high-profile candidates. Like, uh, Brad Bradford has been out there a lot talking about the city and, and putting out videos and, and things like that, but I'm not sure it's quite catching on yet. Whereas Anna Bailau, I think, who, who has, you know, the, the most powerful back room, the most endorsements, yes. the most uh, John Tory's old team, I've been surprised so far that she hasn't been able to sort of, like, start to really define this is where i want to take the city right mm. and this is who i am as a as a mayor she's she doesn't have the highest name recognition like she's known around city hall very well yeah but i don't know that for average voters they have a clear idea in their mind of like who is anna bylaw and what and what's she going to be if she wins and what is her vision for the city and so again like olivia chow maybe she has time to put some meat on those bones and then there's bitsy hunter who i think this week was really out, uh, like she was talking about building a, Shep a subway across Shepherd. Yeah. She's been talking about some other high-profile issues. And I think, um, again, she's somebody who's really starting to try to define a, a grander vision in pieces, but like sort of bringing it together. Um, and, and the interesting thing for her at this point is whether some of those, you know, big high-profile things that she's talking about can actually capture enough attention to get her into the conversation of being you know one one of those top tier finalist level candidates yeah. um so you know that's a long answer to a short question but i think like among those six who you might consider to be the 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 highest profile candidates um only one or two have really started to articulate clearly what what that vision for the city is that's going to unite people. But I think that's the job over the next month or so. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Well, Ed Keenan from the Toronto Stars joining me. We're going through some of the top headlines of the week. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with your points. And before the, the break, we were talking about uh, just who's standing out when it comes to this mayoral race of which we have 73 candidates right now. Um, and you named kind of some of the top runners. Is there one candidate, before we move on to some of the other headlines, are there some candidates that you maybe feel should be higher ranked, should be in the top runner, but but people haven't paid attention yet? You you did mention that, you know, we still have two months, so we do have a bit of time. Uh, but maybe somebody that uh, you're tracking with that you think, hey, people need to be paying attention to them. Um, I, I mean, it's it's hard, yeah, as you say, like there's 73, right? Yeah, so it's hard even for those of us who are, professionally following this to know who, who among the others i i think i spent some time yesterday and i'm writing about it in the star soon but at chloe brown's uh launch of her proposed budget oh, yeah. and it, which is really a restructuring of the entire city government like and how it works and who it reports to whom she's talking about a strong commissioner system um and and there's a lot to digest there, but I think like she's somebody who finished third in the last race, mm. like a distant third, but surprising given that in the beginning of that race, nobody had ever heard of her and she had almost no budget. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm interested to see, I think in a race like this one, where there are so many candidates and so many with, with long resumes, uh, there's a challenge in just sort of convincing voters that you are for real yeah um but i think like on a policy front she's for real mm. it's just a matter of whether politically which is an important part of this job not just getting elected but being the mayor the managing the politics of it are su really super important politically it's a matter of whether she can now build the kind of organization that allows her to to talk to every voter in the city um I think uh, there are a few others. Anthony Peruzza is uh, was like mm -hmm. is a sitting city councilor. He's been around there a long time. He's not particularly high profile as a councilor, but you know he's he's got enough experience, um, and and he's talking about at least one kind of interesting idea in an interesting way and in how he thinks property taxes should be approached. I I wouldn't bet any money that he winds up being one of the front runners, but he he might be somebody who could break through. Um, You've got uh, somebody like um, Anthony Fury, who yeah. has a high profile as a commentator. Um, I, I think uh, a, a lot of, and, and I, I don't know, but I think it's possible that if, if Mark Saunders really doesn't impress people as a, the sort of conservative uh, option, the kind of Pierre Polyevra, Doug Ford sort of populist right, um, if, if, Saunders fails to launch if he can't sort of become sort of like one of the top three yeah. uh, and really move uh, then then there's room on the right and he he might be somebody he's got a lot of energy in his campaign like he's out there every day um, so I mean th those are three that I've, I've seen who who seem to be p potentially laying the groundwork for what could be a bigger campaign but I haven't seen that breaking through yet yeah. um, in terms of like uh, actual voters that I'm talking to or the people I'm seeing in polls sort of embracing that and thinking, yeah, yeah, this is the way I got to go. But, right. and no doubt there are a bunch of others, Yeah, uh, but, but they haven't grabbed my attention yet. Well, I, I mean, we could talk about this forever. I know there's so many other headlines we want to get to, but I think one of my, one of the things that bothers me about just elections in general, right, is that if you have enough money 
to back you up. If you have some of the kingmakers in the room, you get more of the exposure, right? And so there could be some guy or some woman in that 73 who has an amazing amazing ideas and a platform and is really passionate about the city, but they just don't have some of those kingmakers in the room uh, to to push them forward. And that's that's a you know a bit of the the nasty reality of elections. Period. It's not just a Toronto thing. This is just an overarching issue that I've always kind of just griped and complained about. That you know, with that comes a lot of money and a lot of people who can get you in the right rooms to get you those connections to get you the exposure. And that's unfortunately what what sometimes you know that's how you win the race. Um, but you know, yeah, there I might mean, be think, somebody um, else out there. I think it's um. It's an interesting question. It is um, uh, like a real drawback and especially how sort of like being established and having uh, networks into wealthy people yeah. is a massive advantage, like an overwhelming advantage. But uh, the other thing I would say, though, the other side of that is that um, you're not um, applying for a job as like the chief policy officer of the city. No, right. Yeah. Um, ideas are we've got a lot of them and there are a lot around the world and the city staff that we hire often have access to quite a lot of these ideas some of them really good some of them really innovative some of them bad and and the job of the politician like really does involve a lot of like how can you get a ton of people on your side mm -hmm. and part of that as it, it can look sleazy from the outside and it can often actually be sleazy mm -hmm. <laughs> but part of that is like if you have the capacity to raise a million dollars, whether that's from uh, rich people donating the maximum, like fifteen hundred bucks, or whether that's from uh, you know people at your meetings putting ten dollars or twenty dollars into a bucket, right? Yeah. If you have the capacity to raise that money, you're showing I can build an organization that people are going to invest in, right? If you can hire or attract to volunteer for you, um, like serious professionals who know how to do this you're you're kind of uh, in addition to them actually knowing how to do it yeah. <laughs> like getting you the advertising or whatever you're also sending a signal to the rest of us like i know how to manage an organization yeah because if you're the the leader of city council the the symbol of the city and the ceo of a 15 billion dollar a year corporation it's not just like, can you write a great essay about what the city should be? It's like, can you actually build and run an organization? It's true. You're the CEO that, of the city. That for is sure. at that scale. Yeah. No, and absolutely. So, I mean, I think a lot of the time these backroom players, who I, I often do find kind of sleazy, are kind of picking and being kingmakers. And that's the downside of it. But on the other side, when I see a campaign where it's just one person with really good ideas and their best friend from high school. And that's the whole campaign. And after months of knocking on doors and talking to people, that's still their whole campaign. Yeah. I'm saying like, you may well be really smart, but you haven't shown me that you, you know, you understand what this job is, yeah. this particular job. And it's a big job for sure. All right. Um, mm. We have a couple minutes left, but I, I want to hit uh, this headline. You know, we're seeing more delays on the TTC. Wait times on the Young University line will increase. Service reductions are also planned for the 506 Carlton, 512 uh, uh, St. Clair Street cars, um, 32 Eglinton West Bus. You know, the list goes on and on and on. This is in addition to the delays that we've seen in March as well. I understand 
that the TTC is struggling right now. Ridership is down. Uh, but, you know, they haven't done a great job of communicating this to the public. What, how do we see the future of the TTC unfolding? Because we keep pairing back and pairing back and cutting back. I mean, people are just going to be jumping in cars more than they're going to be, you know, feeling like they can rely on the TTC. Yeah, there's a real uh, danger at this point right now of, of kind of a death spiral, right? Like a negative feedback loop where there's less service. And that means fewer people ride. And then there's less revenue because there's fewer riders. So you provide even less service, right? I lived in Scarborough without a car for 15 years near Bellamy and Lawrence. And that Bellamy bus on the weekend would come once a half an hour. On Sundays, it would come once every hour. Wow. In the evening, if I was coming home from my part-time job, you know, it, it would be a 20, 25-minute wait between buses. And you know what happens? I didn't have a car, so I didn't... I, 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 I sucked it up and, and dealt with it, but everybody who has the option to drive will just drive. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so I think the TTC as it, you know, it's, it has real revenue problems. And to be honest, uh, it's the only major city in North America that doesn't get operating funding or significant operating funding from like federal and provincial or state governments. Yep. Um, so like they have a, they have to stand step up here, but they haven't for a generation. But I think, Looking back to the last time I saw the TTC in a crisis, it's interesting. We were talking about David Miller at the top of this uh, yeah. when you and I first started talking. Um, Mel Lastman was mayor, but David Miller and a few others helped work on what they called the ridership growth strategy, which was really focused on buses because the city didn't have a lot of money for subways at the time. And what they did was they said, first, you, you improve the service and you keep fares at a reasonable level. And then you see riders come, right? If you make it convenient, and they make it uh, like free, more frequent service, the riders will come and yeah. then you increase service again. And you constantly keep making it a more attractive option. And that's hard to do when you see revenue way down, when you see the fare box revenue way down. It's easy to say this bus is running half empty. Let's, let's run half as many buses. But when you run half as many buses, guess what? They're fully empty now yeah. because people can't rely on it anymore. Exactly. So I think how, the math of the budget is hard, but I think the strategy needs to be to provide better service, not worse service. Yeah. And there's so many people that depend on the TTC that can't afford uh, a car. 